Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking at uh, chapter 6, but we're going to begin in chapter 1, and if you need a Bible, these guys have some, so get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you that is marked to the book of Ephesians, as we continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. I want to make uh, just a few announcements unrelated to the message, and then we will get into the sermon itself. I meant to mention this when I was making the comments about our ministry center fund just before our offering, but we have been, over the last uh, several days, the leadership team has been preparing a Q&A document, question and action, answer document, that this week is going to be put into booklet form, and for the next couple of Sundays then will be in your uh, inserted in your program so that you'll have that in printed form. But I'm told that this afternoon that's going to be uploaded as well to our website so that you can click on a link, you can go to that Q&A page, and then it has uh, a bunch, maybe a dozen or so, questions with answers from the leadership team. And so we'll send you a church-wide email and let you know about that so that you can get to it. And then if you have further questions, it tells you who to ask, who's on the building committee, who's on the finance uh, team, and so forth. So look for that this afternoon, and the next week you'll have it in printed form as well. I also wanted to say a public thank you, because uh, last night I took my girls, who are in our teen program, junior high and senior high, to a, a nursing home in the area at which our teens <coughs> have been rendering service. This is the second time that they have done that to sing with and just uh, care for and bring delight to the hearts of uh, the seniors who are there, and I appreciate that very, very, very much. Uh, I just want to say publicly that if you have a teenager who is in our teen program, then you are blessed indeed. I have two, and we feel that way. And we feel that way because they're led by Larry and Julie, and I want to say a public thanks to Larry and Julie and Bob and Audrey Gagne as well, and they're assisted by uh, Anthony and Jessica as well. And uh, we just have a marvelous group, and I just wanted to say a public thank you, and I wanted to encourage those of you who have children uh, that are in the teen group and that age group to see it that, that very way. I've had you open to chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, even though, as I said, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, and here's the reason. We've titled our series, Your Place in God's Plan, and for these last many months as we have looked at passages, passage by passage, in the book of Ephesians, we have put that on the screen, but I've not always explained why I have titled it that. I've called this series Your Place in God's Plan because Ephesians unfolds the eternal plan of God, and that plan includes you and me. And I want to make sure that each of us understands that. And so we're going to take some time now as we are getting to the end of this book. We're in the middle of chapter 6 today, the final chapter that we understand how the book is structured and how it does show us God's eternal plan and our place within that plan and thus place in context the passage that we're going to look at today. You may recall that chapter 1 tells us that in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God planned to bring glory to Himself. That is to display His character in His world by remaking broken people. Now remember, this is before the foundation of the world, before there were any people, let alone broken people. But God, in eternity past, chapter 1 tells us, 
planned all of this before anything was created. To put it in biblical terminology, he is going to glorify himself by saving us. And if you take a look at chapter 1, notice what verses 4 through 6 tell us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And the book of Ephesians tells us that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, agreed to come to be our Savior before the foundation of the world. But then chapter 1 moves forward in time past as opposed to eternity past. And it tells us that it's by His death on the cross and the shedding of His blood to cover all our sins that we can be forgiven. And you see that in verses 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And then the book of Ephesians moves forward in time to our lifetimes. And we're told that God sent the message of the gospel to us. Each of us in different circumstances. But if we have come to God through Jesus Christ, there was a point in time through someone, somehow, that God brought you the good news of the gospel message. And at a point in time, we believed that message and the Savior of that message. And then God begins putting into effect what He planned for us in eternity past. That we might display His glory by our changed lives. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, we heard, we believed, and then he begins changing us. Notice verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That's the big picture to eternity past and time past in the life of Christ, into time past, past in your life and my life. And then chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, gives more detail on what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Chapter 2 tells us in verse 1 that his work was done while we were dead, and therefore it is his work and not ours. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Famously, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That work of grace, spoken of in this famous passage from verses 1 through 9, is ongoing as he remakes us. And now let's continue to read verse 10. For we are God's poema, is the Greek word, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And for those now for whom the reclamation project is occurring, we are now part of something new and wonderful. Not only is God making us new as individuals, He's making a new society, a new community that the Bible calls the church, God's household, His new temple. And if you've come to Jesus, you're part of that. And verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us that. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Chapter 3 says that this plan is so marvelous. This new community comprised of new individuals called the church. It's so amazing that the heavenly hosts are amazed at it. Look at what verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3 say. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then this section of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, laying out God's plan for eternity past and the work of Jesus Christ in time past and how the gospel has come to us and God has begun in us His reclamation project, making us new people who are part of a new community that amazes the spirit beings in the heavenly realms. That section ends in verses 20 and 21 at the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 4 begins a new then major section. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us who we are in Christ. 
And chapters 4 through 6 tell us what we must do because of who we are. And so chapter 4 begins, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Live a life that is worthy of the calling that you've received. Worthy, that is consistent with the calling that you received and God's purpose that He purposed in eternity past and is now carrying out in your life. God has this eternal plan, but it's a plan that includes you. Now live that way. Live consistent with that. When it says live in a manner worthy, some translations say walk in a manner worthy. The word that's translated live in your New Testament, sometimes translated walk. And so in chapters 1 through 3, it could really be said that we are, we are shown the wealth that God has given us. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we see the walk that we are to pursue, our wealth and our walk. And how are we to walk? How are we to live consistent with this purpose that God has had through eternity past, thus, such that we fulfill our place in God's plan? Chapter 4 tells us that we are to pursue unity and purity. Now, why is that? Remember, God's remaking people to look like God. And we pursue unity amongst ourselves because God is unified within himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we pursue purity because this God who is executing this plan is an absolutely morally pure and holy God. And so we are to pursue this purity and this, this purity in our lives and our behavior, the way we talk and act and interact. Beginning in chapter 4 and verse 25, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 20, we're told what a life like that looks like. In our speech, in our thoughts, in our behavior. And not only in our individual behavior, but in the impact and interpersonal relationship of our behavior with others. Chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Submit, therefore, to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5, we're given several relationships in which that mutual submission is to show itself. That I place myself under either the authority of one over me or the needs of one who, need, who, who I've been called to care for. And so in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Beginning in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In chapter 6 and verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4 of chapter 6, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then in verses 5 through 9 that we saw last week, slaves, obey your masters. And verse 9 says, masters, treat your slaves. Treat them properly. Treat them with respect as one who is a fellow heir with you because the God you serve does not show favoritism. 
And so you have these two major sections, what God has done for us in chapters 1 through 3, and what we're to do in response in chapters 4 through 6. But we've only come to verse 9 of chapter 6. And you see that there is verse 10 all the way to verse 24. So there's still something more. After all of that, we come to our passage today in verse 10. And here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, there is still more. There is our wealth in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. And there is our walk with Christ in chapter 4 and 5 and the first half of chapter 6. There's our wealth and our walk, but now there is warfare. And we have now come full circle. I want you to notice, friends, very carefully, the end of verse 12. That these spiritual forces with whom we struggle, it tells, tells us, are in the heavenly realms. That should ring a bell for some of you. In the heavenly realms. Do you remember in chapter 1? Chapter 1, where God's plan for eternity... And in eternity past is being planned out. This is what the Bible says in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, notice this, in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then goes on to tell us how that happened. In eternity past, God chose and He planned and determined. And Christ submitted to come and die for the sins of His people. And in time, the gospel came to us and we responded. And God has begun His reclamation project. But it starts by telling us that we are seated now in the heavenly realms with Christ. And this spiritual warfare takes place among rulers and authorities and the forces of spiritual darkness that are in the heavenly realms. Right away, you ought to get a clue that your place in God's plan means this. We win. Do you know why I know we win? Because Jesus fights for us. Because the place where the real battle is occurring is a place where Jesus reigns supreme. And we reign with Him. We are seated with Him. And given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. And verse 12 refers to rulers and authorities. And you may remember that as well. We looked at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. 
And verse 10 says, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be displayed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We are in a spiritual battle. But it is a spiritual battle in which Christ is and will be victor. And verse 11 says that this battle for which we must equip ourselves and put on the full armor of God is one against the devil and his schemes. And we've been introduced to the devil already. In chapter 4, in verse 27, we're told in verse 26, do, do not be angry. In your anger, do not sin. And then verse 27 says, do not give the devil a foothold. Let me ask you, why is Paul in prison as he writes this letter? He says in chapter 4 and verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then. He's in, he's in prison. He's under house arrest when he writes this letter. In verse 20, he refers to himself as an ambassador. Verse 20 of chapter 6, he refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. Why is Paul in chains? Why is Paul in prison? It's because, friends, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. And there are forces led by the devil that hate the plan that God is executing in his world, and you're part of that plan. And those spiritual forces came against Paul, and the Bible is telling us that those spiritual forces will come against you. And therefore, what God has given us must be taken. What God has given to us in Jesus Christ must be seized and taken in battle. That's the kind of language that the Bible's using here. In verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, we have a struggle. And in verse 11, we're to put on armor. And the word against is used four times in verses 11 and 12 against the devil, against, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers. There is opposition, and in this walk, there is going to be a confrontation that results in warfare. What Christ has given must be taken. This is comparable. In your Christian walk and my Christian walk, and the warfare that is inherent in it. It's comparable to God's promises to his people in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Do you remember that they had sojourned in the wilderness and finally coming after 40 years to the promised land? Moses leads them to the banks of the Jordan to, to cross over. Moses dies and passes on the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And if you've read the sixth book of your Bible in the first part of of the Bible, the book of Joshua. It's all about Joshua now leading the people into the promised land. But there's going to be a battle. <laughs> there's going to be bunches of battles. And God has said to them, this land is yours, but what I have given you must be taken. Because there is opposition, and there are those who are against. And that is why 
Verse 10 of chapter 6 begins with this word, finally. Literally, it means for the rest. And now, here is what Paul's saying. Here's the rest of what you need to know. I've told you about your walk. I've told you about the need to display unity and purity if we're going to show the image of Christ to a world that is watching. But for the rest now, this is what remains for you to do. Engage in the spiritual warfare. Take what Christ has given. Let's ask God to help us then as we look at what he tells us in these verses. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the victory that we have already in him. We thank you that he is, he is, not will be, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that he rules the heavenly realms. But we thank you for telling us that there is a battle that we do not see, we only see the effects of, that is taking place out of our sight in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realms, where Jesus is seated and has seated us with him. Help us, Lord, not to underestimate this warfare, to underestimate the enemy of our souls. Oh, God, help us to avail ourselves of your gracious gifts, of the weapons that you supply for us to take what Christ has given. In his name we pray. Amen. I have an outline for you in your program. And this passage in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, tells us, first of all, that we must identify the enemy. We must identify the enemy. The first part of verse 12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Here's what that means, point A in your outline. It means people are not the ultimate enemy. Now, friends, if we're going to take what Christ has given and we're going to engage in the spiritual warfare, it is absolutely necessary for us to understand what I've said in point A there. People are not the ultimate enemy. Remember what we have just been told in verse chapter 5 and verse 22 all the way to chapter 6 and verse 9. That this unity and this purity that we're to display if we're to look like Christ in a watching world, is going to be lived out in relationships with people, husbands and wives, children and parents, employers and employees. And it is so easy for me and so easy for you to get the idea that when sin, as it inevitably does, rears its head in the attitudes and words and actions of those that we are interacting with, when that happens, for us to come to believe that that person is the enemy. And the Bible says very clearly, right after telling us that we're to live out this Christ-likeness in relationships with people, people are not the ultimate enemy. Now the Bible does speak of people who are enemies of the cross because they teach falsely. It uses that word of people. 
But notice how I've said point A. People are not the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy is none other than our adversary, Satan. And so I say in point B, Satan is the ultimate adversary. Your wife is not, your husband is not, your children, your employee, employer, that deacon is not, that pastor is not, Obama is not. And some of us need to be reminded of that. The ultimate enemy is our adversary that the Bible calls Satan. He's sometimes called the devil. We saw in chapter 4 and verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 11 says we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. The word, the Greek word that's translated devil is diabolos, diabolical, we get from it. The devil. He's also called Satan. It means the accuser, the adversary. And he enters the drama of redemption very early on. He was an angel of light, you recall? Isaiah chapter 14. He is, according to Ezekiel 28, the anointed cherub, the anointed angel. He appears even now in his deception as an, an angel of light, but he enters the drama very early on. And he says in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to the heavens. And as a result, he falls. Angels fall with him. And so you have Satan at the beginning and Satan with emissaries and minions to help carry out his diabolical work. He enters the drama early on. But the Bible has already told us the end game here. He's defeated in the end. If you read the book of Revelation, <laughs> he's chained. And God, the Bible actually says, lets him loose for a season. I love that. Just enough chain to hang himself. But notice, he is always fully under the control of Almighty God. He enters the drama of redemption early on. He's defeated in the end, but he appears throughout. And he still appears as the accuser and adversary of God and God's people today. This is why Jesus said, I will build my church. And he threw this in, importantly, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you see why we need not worry, friends? We are on the winning side. There is a battle. We must seize what Christ has given, to be sure. But we win. And Jesus has promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his plan for his building of his church. But we need to know who this enemy is. It is not flesh and blood. But it is these spiritual forces. And I want to point out three things about them that are not in your outline. The first is this. They are powerful. It says in verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but... And then it says against rulers and against authorities. Many believe these rulers and authorities, translated in the King James, principalities and powers, refer to well-organized divisions and armies of darkness. And there is a good reason for that. Did you know that Satan actually has at his disposal these emissaries and these minions to carry out his work? 
And he has apparently organized them. Now, how do I know this? Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to show you a passage from the book of Daniel on the screen in just a moment. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel was given a vision. And Daniel is praying to God for three weeks for an interpretation, a clarification of what this vision means. And here's what we're told in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel says, A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Now who is this one who's touching Daniel and saying, be not afraid, and I was sent to give you your answer. But I've been resisted. And then he goes on to say, but then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. All right, you all get the picture? Daniel says, God, explain this to me. God sends an angel to explain this. And the angel says, I was detained. And Michael came to help me. Now, who is Michael? Daniel chapter 12 tells us this. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. He's one of God's angels. He's one of God's chief angels. And in fact, Jude chapter 9 in your New Testament says this, calls him the archangel Michael. And he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. All right, go figure that. Moses dies. Archangel Michael is sent to dispute by God to sent, sent to dispute with the devil over possession of the body of Moses. I don't think anybody would be fighting over my body. But they were fighting over the body of Moses. A spiritual... Now, do you guys get the idea that there's a spiritual battle going on that we know very little about? And here's what you need to take away from that. You do not stand a chance on your own. And Jesus said this to Peter when he walked the earth. I want you to notice what he says to Peter. He calls him by his Jewish name, Simon. He says, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked. Now just stop there. <laughs> Satan has asked for permission to sift you as wheat. You remember the story of Job? Satan presents himself in chapter 1 before God. And he says to God, let me do these things to Job. And he was only able to do what God allowed him to do. In fact, God said, you can go this far and no further. You can afflict his body, but you cannot take his life. And Satan here has now asked to sift Peter as wheat. 
But our Lord Jesus says, I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. Friends, you don't stand a chance apart from the Lord Jesus. I don't stand a chance apart from the Lord Jesus. And this battle that we are engaged in, verse 12, is against not only rulers and authorities, but against the powers of this dark world. The word that's translated with that phrase, powers of this dark world, is used in astrology, or was used in astrology, of the planets which were thought to control the fate of mankind. We have hymns that have survived that were written to the Greek god Zeus, who's the god of the sky, and this phrase is used of him. It was also used in the writings of rabbis in reference to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon and other pagan kings. And we have found inscriptions with this word that refer to the Roman emperor. And the common idea in all of them is worldwide rule. Powers of this dark world who have worldwide rule. Jesus referred to Satan several times in the book of John, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 16 as the ruler of this world, the prince of this world. The Bible says this, We know that we are the children of God, but the whole world is under the control of the evil. This is why Satan could offer to Jesus in his temptation of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, he could offer him the kingdoms of this world. Now, friends, the good news is this. Jesus has defeated Satan and his minions. We are the children of God. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But thanks be to God, not you and me, if we've come to Jesus. The Bible tells us this about Jesus' defeat of Satan and his emissaries. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, And when it says a public spectacle of them, it's the phrase that was used in New Testament times of a vanquishing army that has defeated its foes and it would parade those prisoners before a city to show that they have been defeated. Jesus made a public spectacle of them. He has defeated them, but hear this. They don't know the game's over. The victory is secure, but for them it's still game on. They are powerful, but not more powerful than Christ. They can't control you. Now hear this. This is why they hate you. (laughs) Because they cannot control you. Control the world can't control you. Just as an aside, and then I'll show you a second thing about these powerful forces. And that is, here's another reason for you not to be a conspiracy theorist. It is amazing to me how many evangelical Christian people are so wrapped up in unbelievable conspiracy. Unbelievable. I used to get forwarded stuff all the time, and I just had to tell people, quit forwarding me this stuff. Listen, I traffic in truth, and I only traffic in what I know. Now get this. There's a conspiracy, okay? There is a worldwide conspiracy. The Bible tells us about it. You know, there's, there's Satan, and there's God, 
and there's God's angels, and there's Satan's emissaries, and there's a whole world I don't even see, and the Bible gives us glimpses of. And the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that the mystery that works and causes iniquity is already at work and will ultimately produce the Antichrist, it tells us. That's all happening. But it's all happening in ways I don't know. And you don't know. And it is way too big for your puny mind and my puny mind. But God has told us what we need to know. That in Christ, the victory is ours. Now, these enemies are powerful, secondly. They are wicked. Power itself is not a problem. It's how that power is used. And so one commentator has said, Our spiritual enemies use their power destructively rather than constructively, for evil and not for good. They are the worldwide rulers of this dark world. They hate the light and they shrink from it. Darkness is their natural habitat. The darkness of falsehood and sin. They're described in verse 12 as the spiritual forces of evil which operate in the heavenly realms. That is in the sphere of invisible reality. They're spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. So then darkness and evil characterize their actions. And the appearance of Christ on earth was the signal for an unprecedented outburst of their activity as they were trying to defeat Christ and His plan. If we hope to over overcome them, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and worthless in the pursuit of their malicious design. Powerful and wicked. And thirdly, they are slick and cunning. What does verse 11 say? We take our stand against the devil's schemes. And the word that's translated schemes is the word from which we get methods, it's strategies. He utilizes tactical shrewdness. An ingenious deception. He seldom attacks openly. He prefers darkness to light. So when he transforms himself into what the Bible calls an angel of light, we are caught unsuspecting. He's a dangerous wolf that seeks to ravage the flock. But he comes in disguise as a sheep. He sometimes roars like a lion, but more often is, is as subtle as a serpent. Remember his first disguise in Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The same word that's used for schemes in verse 11 is used in chapter 4 and verse 14 of Ephesians to refer to false teachers. You see, Satan uses false teaching and false teachers as his emissaries. We fight in a battle for which we know the outcome. But in the meantime, what Christ has given must be seized, must be taken. The game is over, but Satan and his minions are not willing to concede until the very end. It's like going to a basketball game where one team is winning by 30 points and there's 10 seconds left. And the losing team calls a timeout to strategize. Secondly, in your outline. We must, 
not only identify our enemy, but we must rely on our strength. Verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now when I say rely on our strength, I say on point A, we do not have, we do not have our own strength. Jesus said very clearly, John 15 verse 5, Apart from me you can do nothing. Our strength is not in us. Our strength is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate power. And so be strong, verse 10 says, notice, not just be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Jesus is our ultimate power. And when it says be strong, it's written in the present tense in Greek. Be being strong all the time because this battle will not abate until Satan is finally defeated. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 18 through 21, refers to the power of Jesus shown in his resurrection. And it tells us there that this power is the power that is at work in us. Thanks be to God. And so in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 1, you have these, these same three words of strength and might and power. They're applied to Jesus and they're applied to us. And so among the benefits and the blessings of a belonging to Christ is that He's not only the head of all things, not only the head of all things given to the church as head of the church, but He's over all demonic powers in this age and in the one to come. So chapter 1 tells us, verses 18 through 21, that the one who is the head of the church, the one who is our Lord and our Redeemer, our Savior, is also the one who has total power over the forces of hell. We rely on our strength, the Lord Jesus. We identify the enemy. Rely on our strength. Thirdly, in your outline, we utilize then the resources that he has given. I mentioned earlier, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us that. Chapter 6 and verse 20 tells us that. And I can imagine Paul, under house arrest, looking at a Roman guard in his armor and saying in verse 11, Now put on the full armor of God. And in the verses that follow, he's going to describe each of those pieces of armor. We'll see them together in the coming weeks. And he says to put this on so that you can take your stand. And the word stand is a military term for holding on to a position. Before any offensive can be launched, one must first of all maintain his own ground. And four times we're told in verses 11 and 12 that we have opposition, that we are against various forces. It's military. It is warfare. What Christ has given must be seized. So we utilize our resources. Understanding point A, we don't have our own. I don't have any resources for this war. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gave the Beatitudes, remember, blessed are those, blessed are those. The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. We came to Christ empty-handed, spiritually impoverished. We remain spiritually impoverished, but for what He gives us from the treasure of the storehouse of all of the resources that He has. We do not have our own resources, but God supplies what we need. Because of who it is we are dealing with, friends, because he is diabolical, 
We must be protected from head to toe. And so verse 11 tells us, put on the whole armor of God. It's armor that is both defensive and offensive, and we will see its various parts in the weeks to come. I'm going to conclude, believe it or not. But as I conclude, I want to make what I believe is an extremely important point for a passage like this. With all of this talk now in the book of Ephesians and in other places throughout the Bible of cosmic battle and principalities and unseen warfare, we may easily come to think that the battle is only in the unseen world. But if that were the case, there would be no reason for God to say anything to us about it. The battle takes place, now hear this, in our hearts and lives, in the everyday stuff of life. There is indeed a battle much bigger than the Bible describes for us that I could ever get my mind around. That's certainly true. But you and I are caught in the shrapnel of that. And that battle displays itself in our own hearts and lives in the everyday stuff of life. And one of Satan's greatest schemes, methods, is to make what should be heinous seem normal. Adultery is commonplace in our culture. It should seem heinous, but he has made it seem normal. But it's not just adultery. How about gossip? Gossip should be seen as heinous. But it's just normal. It's just me talking with, my, with the guys in the locker room. It's just me talking with my girlfriends. This is just what we do. Despite the fact that it is a misappropriation of the ability that God who made us in His image has afforded to us. What about anger? Anger ought to be heinous to us. But we dismiss it. Oh, I get a little hot under the collar. I've got a a short short temper. Satan appeals to our sin nature, what the Bible calls the flesh. Not our physical flesh, but but our tainted spiritual nature, our sin nature. And he uses the world that he controls in order to make it appealing to our sin nature. And what should be heinous becomes normal. That's why you guys have heard me say over and over again, you will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. Just to show you how subtle this is, how serious this is, here's an episode from Matthew chapter 16. Just after Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible says this, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, we read that and we say, well, isn't that that inspiring? Peter loves Jesus so much he doesn't want him to die. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get, the, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. (laughs) Jesus hears in what Peter is saying the normalcy of sin. We don't want any of that gory crucifixion stuff. We love you so much, and Jesus says, I have come for something much more important than affection. And anything less than me dying for the sins of those who I have come to save is diabolical. Get behind me, Satan. In chapter 4 and verse 27 of Ephesians, anger can give the devil a foothold. In verses 28 to 31 of that chapter, we're given other examples. Friends, please, please hear this. When we sin, we are being used as tools of Satan. When we sin, we are being used as tools of Satan. Satan cannot control the believer. But he seeks to influence us to sin, to tempt us to sin. And every last time we sin of whatever type, it ought to be heinous to us. But one of his schemes, one of his methods is to make what should be heinous look normal. And we dismiss it. And he has come to break in and to rob and to destroy. He seeks to destroy He seeks to destroy your family. Oh, God, protect our families. He seeks to destroy God's church. And every time it happens, every time it happens that he destroys an individual and a home and a church, every time it happens, it's because he has made what should be heinous seem normal. Understand, every time, you gossip and slander and are in sinful anger. You are being used as a tool of Satan. The reason I'm saying, and I am, and the reason I'm making it so stark is because, one, it's true, and we need to see how, how very diabolical it is, my friends. We are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, are we? We know his methods, don't we? Having been forewarned, Let us live accordingly. And I leave you with this. Thanks be to God because of the Lord Jesus, our warrior, savior, our Lord, our king, our God. I need not fear Satan. He can't control me because I belong to Jesus and I have his Holy Spirit. He can't control you if you've come to God through Jesus Christ. I need not fear I am weak. He could sift me as wheat as he could of Peter. But I have one who has prayed for me that I will not fail. Thanks be to God. So we sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God. We're going to conclude in just a bit with these words. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus, ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, that is Hebrew, Lord of hosts. (laughs) He has his emissaries. He's the Lord of hosts. 
Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Thanks be to God.